clubhouse. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And tonight we're here to discuss the ninth episode of the third season of Hulu's Handmaid's Tale. This one is called Heroic. Do you have any guesses on Heroic? I have a couple thoughts. Go for it. Well, as predicted by me, mostly, last episode, the Gilead officials have kept this woman's body alive just so that it could keep the baby alive. So one might call those heroic measures. I certainly would. For the baby. Mm-hmm. Only. Right. And that's that's a running theme in this episode is they're hoping for one thing for the baby heroically and anti-heroically they're hoping for different things for the mom. And then we have the turn at, at the very end with, with June and her kind of resolve kind of becoming heroic again. I think maybe all of that ties together into making the title make sense. What do you think? I like all of that. I, my mind instantly went to heroic measures because that's when you're talking about medical measures at all. Heroic is the thing that comes to my mind, right? <laughs> is there, you think is there's there like a chart? Kind of measure? Yeah. Right. Is there like a chump measure? There's, or right. There's like heroic is at the top, right. right? And then there's sort of, you know, like, I don't know, bus driver or something at the middle area. They're like doing their job, but you know, it's like, it's not really heroic per se. I think you need an adjective, not a noun, not, not bus driver, but like chump measures or like lazy measures or something like some other, some other good adjective for the type of measures. I guess basic measures is what some people get. I basic don't know. Basic measures. I don't know. That'd be the end, other end of the spectrum. I definitely felt like this episode, my, my initial takeaway vibe was, ooh, I don't know if people are going to like this episode. This is a rough episode. It's very claustrophobic feeling. I know that's by design, but still as an audience member, I feel like squeamish that I have to sit through that feeling of being stuck in a hospital room. Now, one of the things for us, if you guys don't follow us on other podcasts, is that we have spent an awful lot of time in hospital rooms. Uh, two of our children were in the hospital for six months. And so in that regard, I may have a PTSD reaction to this episode that other people, maybe I'm very off the mark. Maybe they're not feeling quite as yuck as I do about the episode, but certainly just listening to the beeping of the machinery and the white lights and the those moments when the beeping would go faster or slower and then the text would come running in. It's too familiar for me. So there's a lot of parts to it that just feel, ugh. How do you feel about this episode? And what do you think that fellow audience members are going to feel about it? Just an overall vibe. A lot of the written uh, reviews that I've seen about this season have been fairly negative. That the show has basically lost its way. It's wrecking some of its characters. So I feel like audiences may be set up to really hate this episode, basically. And why, though? What, what makes you feel that way? What makes this one particularly grating for people? The single setting, the claustrophobic feeling, the sense of unreality. Like, one of the first things we'll talk about is that June breaks the fourth wall. Right. What did you think about that? We actually had to stop it and rewind it and watch that again because I'm like, I'm sorry, did she just talk directly to us? What is this about? And is do you think this is going to continue throughout the series? I hope not. I mean, there's there's two reasons that I know of. There's probably more, but there's two reasons that I know of that a narrative allows a character to break the fourth wall. One of them is that they're being very meta. 
that somehow that character or the actor playing the character is fully aware that they're on a TV show and they're kind of winking at the audience because they're cha- they're they're exchanging like a joke or something that exists outside of the show. You okay. know, it's like where an actor famous for for one role or a line or something like that says the line on another movie or something like that and then winks at the camera and then goes and does their thing. Like that sort of thing happens but not in serious dramas. The other time that I see breaking the fourth wall is when the person's going crazy. Agree on that. And I do think that that is the reason why we get it here. There is some absolute break with reality here. And I feel like that the doctor said it best when he asked, how long have you had suicidal thoughts? And she's like, no, 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 no. I've just been thinking about like hurting other people. And he's like, but you know, that would put you on the wall. So therefore, how long have you been having these suicidal thoughts? Now, here's my only like, "Mm," doc on that. We have had... Emily run over a guy's head. We've had Emily stab Lydia in the back. She's in Canada, not on the wall. Right. You know, um, I feel like the doctors is using false logic with her because it's it's that there is some sense, especially with June, that she is getting away with murder. Well, that's the big complaint with her this season, especially is that None of this stuff is caught up with her in any serious way. It seemed like that business that she had, say, last week or the week before when she was like, oh, you can't mess me up because they might need me for TV for Canada. That whole storyline only gets kind of grazed on in, the, in this episode, you know? I agree, so th- yeah. The urgency and the immediacy of dealing with Nicole that was really so present in the first few episodes, the, the steam, the momentum for that storyline that could have been kept very pulsating, you know, for the, for the viewer is now just kind of fizzling along. Agreed. And and not only that, but again, like it leads to this like specious reasoning of the doctor, him saying, well, if you hurt someone or do something out of line, you know, you're going to be put on the wall. So therefore you must be suicidal. Well, huh, only from your point of view, doc, but if you've been watching the show like we have, you would say, no, she does a lot of antics, fully not expecting to have to go on the wall. So I have ask you this question point blank then. Do you think June is suicidal throughout this episode? Or do you think that she is just losing it for having to be stuck in this room and, and the physical pain and the mental anguish of having to deal with this? But do you think she's legit suicidal? No, no. I do not either. I do not either. I think that anyone would go stir crazy having to stay in a room. I think that your brain could definitely be losing it from the beeping sounds and stuff. I know for us, that drove us really insane. Like you had to kind of get away from it for a little while. The second it would start beeping really fast. I mean, every one of us would like lunge for the silence, the beeper button, you know. So I do feel like that there's ways that people kind of lose touch with reality, but suicidal isn't quite it. So I really challenge that doctor and the whole notion that you're supposed to feel like she's suicidal throughout. Do you think the producers want us to think she's suicidal? No. Okay. But it's unclear what they want us to think about her anyway. I love that you say that. Tell me more. For instance, she last week was explaining how she's starting to take great pleasure in the pain of of other people around her. Yes. Specifically, she was... Super happy when of Matthew lost it last week. In other cases, she is operating this. She is like she's she's found out about the Martha network, right? And just wants to dive in, even though you know she doesn't 
why would they let her? You know, why would they do that? And it's like she's a tourist in the revolutionary field, right? With with the Marthas. So she's kind of like hopping from screwing around with Serena and trying to work things that way to the to the Martha Underground Railroad stuff to kind of becoming sadistic. If I had to say what her character was was really aiming to do this season, I I couldn't maybe maybe it'll be defined later, but here I, I can't say. I think that that's super fair. Did you recognize the doctor? No. Wasn't that Billy from Ally McBeal? Was it? Just with a beard and, you know. I mean, obviously. 40 pounds and. Was it? I think so. Weird. I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) That just feels weird. Huh. Well, I'm not ready to think about that <laughs> at all. <laughs> She's very upset, folks. Mm, that just feels weird. All right, so let's get into, the, like, delve into some of the deets of the episode. So while we aren't sure what we're supposed to be thinking about June in terms of what's going on in the inner working of her head, let's talk a little bit about what they told us is going on with June. So Lydia is basically making her sit there because... After all, this is her walking partner, so where else would she be? Now, do you think that that's legit, or is this actually punishment? I think it's punishment. I do, too. This walking partner can't walk. Why would I need to babysit them? I, I, I have bread to go and buy at the loaves and fishes. Get me another partner. It just seems like principle of the matter, completely. So it does feel like punishment. It also feels like the mental anguish and the fact that, you know, easily the doctor was like, uh, leaving her in here for months at a time is not good for her brain. Like, it's going to atrophy big time. So clearly, this was meant to be one of those mental punishments that we discussed in a previous episode that they're starting to rely on. Like, let's not just cut out their tongue or hurt their eyes, but let's go ahead and like really screw with their heads. By the end of her stay, we know of it probably at least five weeks that she has been forced to stay there on her knees. By the end of her stay, it's been months. Oh, was it months? Months. Oh, I thought, I remember them them saying something about 32 days. At the very, very beginning it was. And then they had the sun come and go on the window over and over and over again and different times. And he says, you can't leave someone in here for months. Mm, Okay. So yeah, no, it definitely has been. The idea of bringing in the other handmaids or the wives to do these prayers What's your feelings on this? It's a new twist on the way that they've been doing things the whole time, you know, sort of creating these quasi-religious ceremonies to try to create some unity, I guess, in the in the different classes. Unity within a class and separation amongst classes. So it's it's a new twist on a on an old, old I like thing. the idea that you said that like to try to make a ritual out of it because Having the medical intervention and having this like very science sterile situation is so not what they do when it comes to the ceremony, when it comes to birthing the babies at home with the wife in the bed and all this kind of stuff. Like it's so like that. If you look at that as like a religious ritual on that side, and then we have this super sterile setting, you're right. It's like they were trying to kind of jam some of that ritualistic religious kind of feel into it. 
But it seemed so weird, you know, like, what are you doing here? You know, like, it's inappropriate for everyone to be kind of hanging around the bed. Like, you're probably bringing infection in the room right now. Pretty you much, know? yeah. I mean, one of the things that you guys need to know is, like, as a pregnant woman, she can get infected by laying in the bed there with like, bed sores, anything like that. Like, she she is ripe for infection. The idea of, like, having people coming and going, not in any type of hospital gowns, I know they tried to give the illusion of sterility by having like a bright white light. But the reality is that, again, Paul and I have a lot of experience with this. People weren't washing their hands. They're not coming in in gowns. They're not covering their mouths. They're not doing anything. And her body is open to infection. You know, things are floating around in the air. So it really feels like, you know, they're like asking for it, you know? Well, they're not being overly careful with the, of Matthew's body. Right. When they chopped into her leg to put in that line. Yeah. That looked like like a butcher. Yes. You know, just not the butchers do that same sort of thing, but they do cut. Meat. It's treating it like meat, not like a person's leg. Right. But again, like, and that just doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense because it's that same thing. Like, I mean, regardless of what you feel about her feelings, there's still like a sense of like, you know, you don't want germs to get into her bloodstream you don't want you wouldn't have her laying in the same bed that as june points out at some point she shits herself or you know there's germs and stuff from like the sweat of her body and the you know the sloughing off of skin and stuff like that you wouldn't hack into it in the bed there's just a lot of like really basic stuff having to do with medical things that is just like that's not the way you could treat a body and expect things to not start Breaking down, you know, decaying. Mm-hmm. And she does much. say that it smells like sweet decay. She did call it that. But then weirdly, she also said she smells like a baby. I'm sorry, June. I, I know you've had two children, but babies don't smell like sweet decay. Okay? Like, that's a really fucked up way to describe a baby smell. Right. You think Johnson & Johnson so, were like, you know, it needs a little more decay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've all smelled like Johnson's baby soap. Like, you know, you get a big whiff of that or like some baby magic. You like puff the pink bottle up your nose, right? You know, the first thing you think is like, mmm, partially decaying body. Rot. Delightful. I mean, weird. That's really, really weird, right? Straight up, yo. Let's talk about a couple of other, like, this don't make sense. We said right away, this makes no fucking sense that they leave her alone in the room. Forget about the fact that, like, she could, you know, lose her mind. Let's go with the fact that she's fucking lost her mind. Um, like, a bunch of different times. Why would they think that it was safer of Matthew, who Lydia knows June's been harassing, why did, I mean, they have several moments that we actually see her squeeze the air tube, you know, deciding to go over with the scalpel, all these like moments, but it's like, but we already knew that. She's already acting like that on the outside. It's not like she hid these tendencies to right. want to hurt her. She choked her out. So what the Joe? Why are they trying to act like it would be remotely okay to leave an unsupervised person? Is there really that few people and so many people in the hospital? I don't think there are that many people in the hospital. I don't think there are either, Paul. Because we know they don't really treat people like how we treat people no. now. They're a little more like horse doctors. Uh, <laughs> if it gets too bad, you just shoot them. I think in principle, if you were making this, trying to justify the punishment for the deed, you're functioning under this idea that the person you're punishing is buying into the Gilead system and and values life and values babies' lives and yada, yada, yada. It doesn't because they're dealing with June, who has been the wildest um, canon, 
right? Yeah. Here. Loosest. Loosest. That's it. Not wild cannon. Loosest wild cannon. Wild cannons are probably pretty cool. They're, they're rough. Loose cannons are yeah. bad. You don't want to get into a bar fight with a wild cannon. Probably not, but loose cannons, not that either. No. The main thing, though, is just, like, so that seemed weird, okay? It seemed weird to leave her alone in there. Unsupervised, no indication that there's even cameras in there. I mean, just for the safety of the baby. It just seems weird. Secondarily, the sharps box. We could see that as a problem a mile away. Forget about the fact that there was a scalpel in there, which, what? A scalpel in there? Well, it's not the presence of the scalpel that makes me kind of call bullshit. It is the absence of the kind of devices that prevent one from breaching in, basically. Let's talk about that. Whenever I see a sharps container, there's usually some device that it's because... It's not a device. It's a mechanism. Right. There's like like a little round part of plastic that when you open the box... It shuts off the part of the of the open part of the box. So if you guys have never messed with a Sharps container, what happens is when you open the lid, there's a curved part that swings down and covers the top of the box. Sort of like a mailbox. Sort of like, like that. You like you can't like reach a, into a mailbox. Exactly, like a big blue U.S. post off right. box. Okay, when you open it up, that other part swings down and covers it so you can't reach your hand in. That's what a real Sharps box looks like, y'all. So the idea that she could just... Open the flap and stick her hand right in. Unbelievable. What? Not And again, you're not, I know they want us to feel grossed out by stuff. I know they want us to have these painful moments, but that was way too much. Have her jab her finger in with that needle. Have her make us watch her hold her finger out in the air and take this needle out. Yeah, it made my balls shrivel up. It was an unnecessary You know, there's like a lot of parts you can try to dwell on her anguish. The fact that she shouldn't have been able to reach that needle to begin with. Secondarily, like, you guys, there's a lot of ways to like slowly reach your hand in and kind of flick around with your fingers. Well, you don't just jam your finger right in. Come on. Well, we haven't had any fresh body horror in a while. (sighs) I did not need this body horror. Okay. (laughs) Did not need this. And you guys, here's the deal. Gilead has no reason to have massive amounts of medical. Okay, it doesn't have any reason for that. We know that things like a scalpel, that's the type of thing that you sanitize and use again. That's why they're like stainless steel. So the idea that you would throw that in the sharps box like you would throw that away, bullshit on that. You wouldn't do that. That's not even what else done now. After she stabbed at Serena and the doctor took the scalpel and he just put it back in the sharps box. He did. And he did it in this kind of, they. I mean, they let him do it in full view of the camera from June's perspective. Oh, yeah. And even, it's it's not like he quite looked back over his shoulder when he did it, but you kind of felt like he did, you know? Right. Okay, so do you want to get into that doctor conversation right now? Um, We want to talk about the buildup a little bit more. Yeah, I guess we can go with the buildup a little bit. let's talk about this buildup for a little bit more. So now we have the the length of time she's in this room, the fact that she's, she's in basically solitary confinement, the fact that she's got all this like disgusting smells and sights and sounds to deal with. She's using this song. Heaven is a Place on Earth by Belinda Carlisle. Talk to me about this, Paul, because basically she is using the beeps and the boops of the medical equipment to create something to sing along to. Now, is this something that you do? Yes, I'm afraid it is. And I don't know if that means that I'm crazy or, or what, but... Great. 
But yes, I'm afraid that I do hear songs in random confluences of, of noises like that. Did you hear it in that particular thing or was that a stretch? Later on, after after the first couple iterations and they kept kept doing it, I think they manipulated the beeps to go I a little too. more with it, especially when the, with, with the urine drops. Yes. Once, once that happened, I think it was more obvious, yeah. Now, if you guys don't know the lyrics to that song, I invite you guys to look it up and take a look. And there's definitely words in there that makes a lot of sense to this whole situation. This whole idea that like, you know, we're just beginning, but now she's going to have like this, this, this big moment where she's like realizing something. I do feel like that's happening right here in this episode, even though it's painful to get through. I do feel like it's a transformative episode. Now, one of those moments of transformation is when we have this Janine scene. I guess what she did when of Matthew hit her in the face, I guess she hurt that eye with the can. I think she tore the socket. Ah, okay. So when that happened, that required more medical intervention. So she was going to need a little procedure to help that eye out a little bit. So she is allowed, again, weird, weird, why are the handmaids allowed to just bebop around the hospital, entering other people's rooms? There's zero security to make sure that anybody's being taken care of. This makes so little sense. And let me tell you why. Do you remember when Fred got hurt? Yeah. Do you remember when June and Nick were sneaking around in the hospital? There was mirrors. There were guardians, there was all this yeah. worry. Yeah. Now the hospital is just like, everybody just bebops around. We all do our own thing. Right, and it doesn't matter if you're in your room. You don't have to be in your room. I'm doing like a chicken flapper dance right now with my elbows flopping around. Like, there's no visiting hours. We can all do whatever we want. What the fuck? It's just a sleepover. It's a big goddamn handmade sleepover. Huh? No. We need some. Our, no, the consistency is really consistency. starting to fail in this show. And it's failing because they are trying to make it where it's like we can move forward, we can have these conversations. Take an extra fucking minute, take one second off of June's close up to actually have one of them have to figure out that like the guard went to lunch or something. And that's when she like swoops in, okay? Act like there's something there some obstacle to have to get past that she can't just wander in in the middle of the night in these nightgowns. Or the guardian notices Janine and, and takes her back to her room or something. That's how that scene should have ended, right? Yeah. With someone coming in being like, you can't be in here, get out. That would make so much more sense. However, that scene was pretty interesting. This was one of those moments. Now I know Janine has been very Pollyanna this whole entire time, but she really calls June out on her bullshit. She really is like, Look, man, you are not the person you used to be, and you're freaking me out. Well, I'm glad she did. There's no one else anymore in her everyday that can say things like, you're selfish. The rest of us kind of know it. Or that she'd hear it from where it wasn't coming from a place of sinner, sinner, crybaby, crybaby, but it was coming from a place of like, your thoughts and your actions are benefiting no one, literally no one. Did Nick talk, call her selfish when, when he was mad at her? Who did? Nick. Maybe. I think that that sounds right. Because it definitely just feels like what, what we've been talking about. These antiquings around. This taking Mrs. Lawrence out. Standing by the wall. Just putting your arms up. Holding the wall. Like this was leading to nothing, friend. Nothing at all. And you were just 
you're being so uh, selfish is one word. And I want to say short sighted is another like all of our plans have been basically what can I do within the next like hour? But it's like not thinking like any kind of long game at all, you know, and I know there'd be urgency. Don't get me wrong. But all these short term moments, like even holding off the air tube, you know, it's going to start beeping, you know, like there's all these weird short term moments where you're like, you're just anticking around. Janine calls her out on it. I appreciate that, Janine. So what's the deal? Why is Serena hanging out with Matthew and Mrs. Matthew? They're trying to act like that they were friends. That somehow like Serena's friends with the other wife, which I guess maybe a little bit she would be. I mean, I know that Fred is a little confusing to us right now. The way that he like went to go hang out with Winslow in DC. It's making me wonder like, is he getting to be a big wig in the cracker factory or they told us he was demoted. So is he not such a big wig anymore? It's a little unclear in this episode where he stands. So it seems like maybe he's going to move up and go to DC and be something more fantastically important. But it's unclear in this episode. And Serena hanging around kind of implies that she could be sort of like a first lady-ish importance. Like she's coming around and being friendly to people. She's the only other person that really can call June out on bullshit and be like, look, man, you're acting weird. Are you sick? Like you seem weird. I mean, Serena is sort of the ultimate frenemy in that uh, category. <laughs> like you don't necessarily take that. All right. Let's talk about that scene, Paul. She sat there. And thought about which one of these people am I going to use this scalpel? She had had that scalpel behind her back, presumably like 12 hours at that point, right? Yeah. Was that the saddest swipe of a scalpel you've ever seen or just kind of the saddest scalpel scene you've ever seen? If she was trying to kill Serena. How about just like cut her at all? That was not ever going to do it. Like a downward swipe away from her body. I've seen enough horror movies, enough Pet Cemetery action to know that she was already low. You know where you get them? Fucking Achilles tendon, Paul. What are oh. you, new? Okay, listen, this is old school. Old school Pet Cemetery. okay? Old school, under the bed, scalpel to the Achilles tendon. Come on. They reach down... Their, their neck is right at neck, right, right at your level. Then you just swipe their fucking jugular. I'm clearly surviving the zombie apocalypse. Meanwhile, Polly's over there, the downward slice. That's not going to get you. I'm saying you go with where you're at, you know? Struggling to get up like a little monkey. Oh, my God. So that makes me wonder, was she trying to kill Serena? I don't know what she was trying to do. Because her, her mental chatter before that was saying that she she's looking for someone to kill right then. And then, right. then public enemy number one strolls in the room. She's like, target acquired. And, <laughs> and then she's on mission, not completion. <laughs> right. All I did was tatter her sleeve a bit, but manages to get her own hand cut. Yeah. Well, oh, that was so OJ of her. Serena pretty handily dealt with her as if she'd... She has some had some training macabre, or something. Man. Yeah. That, that chick like step back, move forward, slice the slice the perp's hand. Oh, she Dang. she yanked the knife through the hand. Oh my god, that's some good stuff. Yeah. Victims of any type of crime at all should like think about this move for the future, right? I'm thinking about it. What if you need attacked thinking, by a scalpel wielding psycho? No, you could grab the handle of anything. Is the point of the story? You grab the handle and yank it down the person's hand in really anything. I think this is a real move we should be thinking about. Okay. 
But what did you think was going to happen after that? Did you really think Serena was just going to go in the hall and be like, ah, there's been a little situation going on over there in the uh, handmaid's quadrant of the room? Yeah, I kind of thought she'd be like like everything. I kind of thought she'd be in more trouble than she was. She, she was in – because, I mean, in this case, she was in 0% trouble for giving a – uh, a wife, uh, a cut on an arm. I think she's I, I probably cut on think the... she cut her. No, I really don't. I think I, it was just all sleeve. I think it, she got a big old sleeve. Yeah, a bell sleeve worth of scalpel. That's it. Lame. Yes. Achilles tendon, yo, was right there. She went through the whole, come here, I have to tell you a secret. Come closer. <laughs> Serena. Don't you know you'd be like, I don't want to hear no secrets from you. And anyway, there's no one in the room, so fucking spill it. Who's going to hear it? The gal hooked up to the machines? Fucking just say. What do you want to talk about? Bullshit. Now, Paul, I know that you only went to medical school for a couple of years. You didn't finish out the degree, but would you grade those stitches given to uh, June like an F or like an F minus? Well, it's clear that uh, the once and future Billy was... Not a plastic surgeon. Better lawyer than doctor? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you see um, medics in the field in war movies tie up things a little more neatly than that. Uh, and they're separated by like several inches. And then the stitch is like really big and like, it's like a whole like half an inch across like that, oh, a tiny cut. It's a really bendy area, Doc. You really got to so cinch that in a little bit. weird. Better. I was like, that is Garbage. That's a garbage stitch. <laughs> I've had stitches in my finger, yo. You've seen stitches in a finger. I still have a scar from the stitch in the finger. Take a good look. They're nowhere near that wide. No. And they're and they're not like separated by like, you know, feet between stitches. Weird. Okay, now let's get into this doctor lecture. Okay. He tries to be real, real sassy about this. Right? We're getting a lot of like, I'm here for the patient. The patient is the baby. June pulls out all of her usual salty tongue comments, like all, what are you doing here? Do no harm. She's someone else's daughter. All kinds of stuff. Where did you see this going with the doctor? I mean, did you see him wanting to like smack her in the mouth? Did you see him like wanting to be like, how about we ceremony up on this bed? Like, what did you think was going to happen? His tone to her was a little condescending. A little? And... That is the same as those stitches were a little bad. Very much in the teacher-student type type model. I'm like, you're a joke to me. And so in that kind of mindset, it's it's like he, he wasn't mentally al- allowing her comments to in because it would be like a preschool teacher letting one of her students rile her up with the child's words. It was kind of that same attitude. Like, there's nothing you can say. Now, do you think when he said, what are you going to do to leave a legacy or somehow be like something great to your daughters, speaking of riling up, do you think he was giving her some sort of nod and a wink? Like, if you don't like this situation, how's about you do something about it? Is everybody so stay in your own lane that he's just like, I'm the doctor. I'm here to make sure babies come out of this hospital. And that's all I do. And I don't really give a good goddamn if you handmaids are out there wreaking havoc. I really don't care. That was the read I got off him. Okay, so was he intending to start a little coup? He's got to know how the system works at this point. That handmaids don't get to interact with their children anymore. But on the other hand, I don't think he'd say anything treasonous either. 
I kind of feel like asking, like, what's the legacy you're leaving for your daughter kind of thing. I don't know. That's borderline, don't you think? Like, if there was someone else in the room, would he say that? No. No. So then in that case, don't you know that that's treason? Like, don't you know what's wrong if you wouldn't say it if someone else was there? Good point. It's like, if you send a text and you say, well, it wasn't that flirting. You say, well, would you say it if it was like a group text? No. Well, then you like answered your own question. So what is with this doctor? And if he is a semi-known actor, you know, Billy from Ally McBeal, then does that mean that the doc's coming back into the fold later? Will he be a helper later? Nah. Guest star. Is he only thinking about bringing life into this world? Not life into Gilead, but life into this world. But that's kind of giving him a nice easy cop out for the way that he's he's doing things. But yeah, I mean, that that may be what he tells himself to, to operate and sleep at night. That his path is, is righteous that way. Well, I mean, he definitely has that God complex stuff. Because, I mean, when he ultimately does the C-section with of Matthew and he's like, show her up or not, whatever, you need the practice. I mean, he clearly has a I'm above the human race kind of feel to him, right? I know that this is the case, given the situation. And this isn't meant to sound overly sexist, but I've been in a couple deliveries and they've never been all men. You know what I mean? Okay. Did you notice? I did. The doctor and the supporting other doctors and nurses and staff were all men. Right. I mean, I know that makes sense within the sense of the world, of Gilead, but for some reason that image was still just startling to me. I think it was extra startling because the reality is that in all of our experiences, not only have many doctors been women, but definitely all the support staff were women. I mean, it was very few and far between that we've had a male nurse or even male techs. I mean, for the most part, they're women. So this did feel like, well, that already seems out of place. I don't think that's sexist at all to call that out and say that felt weird. But in terms of the way that they treated of Matthew's body, is it that he had such little regard for a woman? That he had such little regard for this particular woman? Or was it just like, well, doctors deal with like cadaver bodies in order to learn. So given that she's brain dead and and we don't think there's anything going on, so we think then treating her like a cadaver body is not actually mean or anything. It's just, mm, I mean, it's without sentiment, but it's not meant to be malicious. Yeah, it's more like that, like that kind of medical detachment that doctors are supposed to keep. Doctors can develop this kind of coldness when giving kinds of advice, right? For sure. With regard to life and death sort of things. And amongst the special needs community, doctors are, are particularly reviled, I would say. Um, I mean, some are, some are adored because they managed to help somebody, but a lot of doctors have a pretty bad name because they gave families some pretty dire advice or, or led them down a path that, that the family kind of overcame whatever it was that doctor kind of prognosticated, right? Your kid will never walk, talk, whatever. I think that the idea that a doctor being kind of cold hearted and a little bit detached from the fact that these are humans with feelings and real hopes and dreams and all that kind of stuff. I think what you're saying is that that's like prevalent, right? Like we've had those that experiences. Is yes, that's what I'm saying. So I get that. And you know, when you just said that thing about guys and girls and, and being doctors and all this stuff, you know what I realized? When he said the comment to the to the other people in the OR, which I'm going to call them techs, I realized that if handmaids were things like biology teachers and high-level NICU doctors were became Marthas, wouldn't, by the flip side of town, maybe a garbage truck driver become the hospital tech? 
Like, there's no reason why that particular person would have been suited to even be in the operating room. Like, there's no reason that the previous job should have anything to do with where they were assigned. Perhaps. We know Fred wasn't in charge of jack shit in the real world, yet here he is a commander. I think I'm right. I don't think that there's any reason why any of those hospital techs have any actual hospital experience. I think that's part of the way that you keep people like kind of off kilter. You don't put them in their place of like where their expertise lies with the exception of like the doctor. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Like you do put the guy who doesn't really know that much about medicine and there's, so he doesn't ask any questions and he doesn't do anything. You know, he's just going to follow your instructions because he doesn't know how to do anything else. They had to fill those jobs. So I can go with that to a certain extent. I mean, there's a level of expertise that you can't just drag somebody in. He said you need practice on just how to do some sewing up. I mean, what? Now, the fact that of Matthew does not pass away right away. What do you know about this? How do you feel about this? What was this symbolic of anything? What did you think was going on? That's a hard question. No, I didn't think it was symbolic I'm of anything. I'm this out, man. I'm not. So, I'm done with my softball lobs at you. This is going to get tough. No, I don't think it was symbolic. Like meet I mean, the press tough. She was just brain dead and waiting for her, her body to figure that out. Why didn't she die? Why didn't she die right away? I think it's spirit, Paul. You think it's spirit? I think her little soul wasn't okay to leave until she was assured that her child and children were going to be cared for. One thing I do know about the human body passing is that hearing is the absolute very last thing to go on a person. Meaning you can be in a coma, you can be in the last stages of passing away, yet it's been proven that they can still hear you. I have been there when people have passed and they encourage you, the doctors encourage you, keep talking to them. Say you love them. Say what a great job they did. Let them know it's okay to go because humans want to hang on. You know, they want that permission to be able to go. And I think for of Matthew, as much as we know that she bled out, she didn't have a brain injury that we're aware of besides lack of blood to her brain. But she didn't, it's not like she had a gunshot wound to her head, you know, so far as we know, as far as we we could understand. So I really honestly think she was holding on as long as she could there until June said, I've kind of figured out my calling here. I kind of figured out what I need to do. And that is to get the children out. And I'm promising you of Matthew that it's okay for you to go because I am going to watch after your little boy. I'm going to find your other children and I'm going to get them all out. While we did not hear the classic beep at the end to let us know that Matthew completely died, I still think that the long pauses and then the silence would imply... Same thing. ...of Matthew let go, finally. Yeah. Now let's talk about how old June got there. Let's talk about the parade of Pinkie Pies bebopping by that room. Up till this episode, we had been assuming that when they dress young girls in pink, that they were being prepared for the handmaid's life. The girl that June met in the hallway said, said something about getting married. She did. So the whole deal was that these girls were being paraded in because they were supposed to be being checked. Their pelvic development was being checked to see when they would be ready to carry children. This is gross. I feel super bad for these girls. I feel barfing out that this is what goes on with this. However, I would say that it was sort of good news, I guess, when Rose said, you know, I, I, it seems like it's going to be soon, but I won't have to have a baby until I am married. 
this is really fresh information. That means that light pink is not actually on the way to red. It means that light pink just means young woman. Weird to me that it isn't a light blue dress if you're going to become a wife. In, in the book, do you recall, were they pink? They don't deal with kids like this. Not at all. Do you think that it was ever meant to be misleading or do you think they changed mid-course here? Like, were we supposed to be thinking that they were going to become handmaids? That was supposed to lead to our terror here? Or do you think that they always intended? Like, what, if, what do you think happened here? If it wasn't an attempt to mislead, then they should have known better. You know what I mean? There's only I mean, colors are symbols. There's only a couple colors in the whole show. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you make something a version of that color, you're you're making like a the, lighter version. You're making the viewer make assumptions about those colors in their relationship, especially when it's, you know, young versus old color versus like mature, immature to mature. Right. So the question mark to me then is, did they change course and decide we're going to say that these girls could get married and could do other things? Did they show kind of tween age girls prior seasons? We've always just seen the The girls. girls in pink. All girls though. Every age girl we've ever seen, with the exception of, like, say, Eden. Anybody who is considered a child of Gilead. Whereas Eden, I don't believe, was considered that. So she wore a different color. But the children, the true children, were always wearing pink. Okay. We've never seen that. Where are the young boys? Have we only seen young girls? I think so. Well, like, Winslow had some sons, but they weren't. They weren't wearing this type of crap. I mean, like, we've never seen them. We've never seen a boys' school. We've never seen, like, we've seen pink dresses walk by for three seasons. I can't think of a young boys' line walking by. Where are they? What's going on with that? I wonder how mature the educational system is in the world-building sense. You know what I mean? Yes, I would like to know. Like, is is this sort of a a European style where they kind of pick your path pretty early on? Yes. And then say for the boys, boys destined to become guardians or whatever, they're split off to do physical shit. I would love to know. I mean, what do you think? I mean, is there a boys' school somewhere? Have they already picked who's going to be guardians? Have they already picked who's going to be commanders? Are they wearing light blue suits? The guardians are wearing gray? Like, what What do you think? What is happening? Or have they just not built this world at all? It doesn't feel like it's built out. I mean, that's how it would make sense if it, if it was. I, I can think of a few different parallels from other science fiction, but I well, would... Okay, so in those parallels... It starts young and it is harsh. You know, it's it's like, uh, especially for those going into military kind of stuff. Or if you were on, say, the quote unquote commander track, right? That would, I would, I would assume, be something very strenuous that if you fell out, then I don't know what that means. Say you're 16 when you fall out of the, the commander track. That means that people that have been going to basically like trade schools to be like the econo people, the uh, they will have had years on their on their trade, you know. So what what are you? What know. good are you? Right. So I, in those science fiction stories, know. those people are usually killed, yeah, even like, though they're kids. I don't see that as like. I think if you were raised by a commander 
and raised by a wife. If you're a girl, you get to be a wife, and if you're a boy, you're a commander. Nobody who's raised by the Waterfords is going to go become a tradesman. It doesn't matter how weak he is. It doesn't matter how sad his brain works. It won't matter. I mean, if you are raised in a commander and a wife's household, we've only seen girls. So I'm really wondering, like, where where are the boys and what are they doing? No indicators just yet. Now, here's a secondary question. Besides of Matthew, have we ever heard of a boy being born there? I don't know that we have. The only babies we've seen have been girls. I mean, we know that there's some sort of weird genetic stuff going on. Is it possible that girls are all that's going to be born? Remember the sh- quote-unquote shredder baby that they only talked about earlier in the season? Was was that a boy? I'm not sure, but does it matter? I'm talking about live babies. doesn't really matter. I don't care if a boy baby makes it all the way to birth but dies. I don't care. I'm talking about live babies. Have we heard of anybody say a boy was born before of Matthew? I can't think of any. I'm just wondering if in some funky way... They're producing girls, lots of girls. The Winslows had sons, so I don't no, think No, they so. were stolen babies, Polly. Weren't those stolen babies? Because it's only been going on for like five years or whatever. The older boys were not born in Gilead. Those boys were not there, were they? I mean, I know there was like a one-year-old, but who even cares? They were, they're stealing people's babies. So, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but um, to, to think that. Would be, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just trying to think this through, you guys. I'm trying to think this through. It would be an interesting twist if Gilead only produced women. Do you see where I'm going with that? That would be really crazy because you'd be producing like a matriarchal society, right? Like yes. eventually the Commander Lawrences are going to die and they're replaced by five women in his household who only produced women, And so I find that to be particularly hilarious if no boys are being born and they never show us any boy children. I don't care about the Winslows because I don't know. Those children could have come from the very crib that they showed you in D.C. from someone else. They don't have to have been born in Gilead. A salvage like child, right? From like Chicago or whatever. They could have just snatched them and give them over, right? Names were all changed of these children. It would be easy to think that like Oliver could have been snatched in. I understand what you're saying. I just think it's interesting. For the show to go that direction would be like quasi-spiritual. And I don't know if the show's ever like- you think so? Well, it just seems kind of mystical, right? That that you just like, that that you just stop passing on Y chromosomes. But if the men are probably the problem, right? Specifically, most of these commanders, like Fred's not producing children. Yeah, but you still- Joseph's not producing children. You still need the male gene to duplicate, you know, to, to make new people. Mm-hmm. But if one or two guys are producing two or three kids for people who aren't producing any, but all he's producing is girls, I don't know. I'm just saying, I think that's an interesting twist. I would like to put that in the listeners' brains that like, what would happen if we just keep producing girls, y'all? Just keep making more and more girls. Speaking of girls, which is my Mrs. Garrett, Aunt Lydia impression, talk to me a little bit for a moment here about the eye patch moment. It's a continuation of the bizarre... The bizarre adventures. Mother and surrogate daughter relationship between Lydia and Janine. I mean, Lydia will savagely beat this girl, but... But also giggle with her. Literally giggle with her. When Janine calls herself a space pirate, 
and they just giggled together. What was your feeling? I'm like, I'm like, like kind of speechless. Like, I don't, some part of me was like, are you allowed to talk about space? Like that felt somehow sacrilege. Like you weren't allowed to call yourself a space pirate. Cause I don't know, are space and pirates even allowed to be in this world? I don't even know. There's an animated character from the eighties named Captain Harlock. He was a Japanese animation and he was one-eyed space pirate. Not super funny. Yeah. So, but you get what I'm saying, though. Like, as a handmaid, if you're not allowed to swear and stuff, like, are you allowed to know about space or talk about space pirates? I don't know. Well, space is still a thing, whether or not you can read. Mm, is it, though? Is anything? <laughs> okay, so what is up with these two birds? Is Aunt Lydia going to turn to our side? Is Janine going to turn her? If Janine's little loving heart was able to turn June a little bit here, is it going to affect Lydia? Is that relationship actually going to bloom into something? We had a teacher like this in our lives who was like one of those like best friend one day want to put you in the detention the next day. And like she was always so freaky to us. It was hard to deal with because you didn't know. In a very Aunt Lydia way, right? Didn't know if you were getting the friend or the authority. And and it could change on a dime. Like you could be laughing actively in a joke and then now you're in trouble. That happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) So you know how messed up that is. So the question mark is like, Do you think this storyline is going to try to have Aunt Lydia and Janine have some sort of actual momentum moving forward? Or is this just going to continue to be this really gross, picking at a scab kind of feel? This show has so far not taken anything to conclusion, Mm, right? Right. This was sort of one of the things that made Game of Thrones compelling midstream, right? Was that there were certain stories that just got cut short. They were just ended. And it made people incredulous in the moment. But for some reason, audiences just ate it up, you know, when a character was killed early or whatever. And so you got kind of these story arcs that just quit midstream. Handmaids hasn't done that with anything. Being able to predict what this outcome might look like or will it just fester until june leaves and there's we just leave them with the two of them like hitting each other like a punch and judy it could go either way janine is not really on the june train anymore Um, she never has been never since she no ever since she got her eye plucked out she hasn't been on the june train she's been like all over the place she goes back and forth she goes back and forth and back and forth like she on one hand like very much wants to be with her kids but <sighs> you know like poor janine she's so mixed up at this point well if there's an opportunity for janine to somehow fall in with june do you think she'll take it no i don't so then See, this- i think she will take it But just because she's so seesaw. The way I'm thinking of it, like that weird relationship with Lydia, if Janine and June did for some reason team up and needed Lydia to look the other way for some reason, right? Hmm. Then that would be a compelling kind of moment, right? Now, hold on. Let's think about that for one second. If they team up and it has anything to do with kids, right? Yeah. On the betterment of kids. If the one thing that episode eight taught us was that Lydia has a super soft spot and a family soft spot, like historically family soft spot for advocating for children who cannot save themselves. And if Lydia was in any way made aware that something bad was going to happen to these kids, 
and she saw the opportunity to get kids away from the situation, that would really mimic episode eight. Maybe like salvaged kids that they weren't going to salvage. I'm not sure. I don't really know. I'm just saying that like Lydia herself has that history of having like this this soft spot for kids. She may not have a soft spot for Janine and June, not at all. But the one place they have shown that is with Ryan from episode eight. Yeah. So if we have some amount of, I don't know whether June or Janine are going to really team up, but but like you said, if you set up the premise, if the two of them teamed up and they needed Lydia to look the other way, the only thing that I could see is what June is saying she's going to do at the end of this episode, which is she wants to help the kids get out. And I feel like that's Lydia's soft spot. The only place we've seen any softness with her is helping kids get safe. So if she was made aware of something going on in Gilead that she felt was truly bad for kids. Now, I mean, obviously the entire premise of this place is bad. But I mean, like she saw a kid get hit. She saw something really bad happening to a kid. That might compel her to actually change her ways, you know, just based on her history. Okay, yeah. Otherwise, I mean, if you look at episode eight, that that could be the springboard to give her a reason to do that. If this season ends without something kind of big happening with that June and Lydia and Janine dynamic, specifically Janine and Lydia, then I'm going to wonder, like, why was this scene even made? You know what I mean? Like I do wonder. I do wonder. I don't know. Listeners, we absolutely encourage you guys to give us some feedback. Do you think we're going to see a change between Lydia and Janine? Like, is something about the two of them going to actually, I don't know, push each other to make some sort of new move? Is June going to actually be successful in quitting just like anticking around, but actually take some freaking real steps towards doing something? Did that doctor conversation help? Is her hand going to become infected and be like such a freaking mess that she's going to have to deal with split hand-itis? I don't know. There's that, but then there's also she stuck herself with that needle in the sharps container, so why wouldn't she have some sort of dread disease from that? Ooh, dread disease. That does sound bad. Well, thank you guys so much for listening, and let's find out next week if there'll be dread disease. Ooh. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.